Thank you for listening. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit the Hay Player at hayfestival.org. Good afternoon and welcome to Hay. Um, we are very lucky this evening, uh, this afternoon even, not that late, um, to have a brilliant um, speaker talking, who is an expert in what we're going to be hearing about. She is the lecturer in heritage and politics of the past and the first ever person to hold a lectureship at, in this area at the University of Cambridge, where she also did her PhD in um, reconstruction of cultural heritage after civil wars and the long-term impacts on societies. She's the founder of Cambridge's post-conflict and post-crisis group and the deputy director of the new, very newly founded um, Cambridge Heritage Research Centre. So please, um, without further ado, give a warm welcome to Dr. Dathia Viejo-Ros. Thank you. Wow, hello. Um, thank you for coming. I realize I have very stiff competition with Philip Pullman just in the other tent. Um, so this is what I'm going to be talking about. Um, before I get into the actual lecture, I just want to tell you a little bit how I got into this field in the first place. And it all started for me in Bosnia. That's the Mostar Bridge. Um, I was working at UNESCO in Paris. It was my first job. And everything that I had wanted to do, cultural heritage, international politics, culture all came together. I was living in Paris, I was at UNESCO, it was the place I wanted to be. And I was working on, it was a moment when UNESCO was working on the Dayton peace agreements in terms of the reconstruction of cultural heritage, science, education in the former Yugoslavia. So I was going to lots of meetings of ministers of culture, of education, of the former Yugoslavia, finding out what, what they were doing in the reconstruction. And the organization had all these flagship projects, like the reconstruction of the Mostar Bridge. On paper, in my office in Paris, it all looked fantastic. They were going to rebuild the Mostar Bridge. And in doing so, they were going to rebuild this war-torn community and set it back to the way it had been before, to this glorious image of multiculturalism, peaceful multiculturalism. And then I actually went to Bosnia and to Serbia and to Mostar. And what I saw was slightly different on the ground from what it looked like on paper in Paris. So the reconstruction, the story of the Mostar Bridge, for those of you who remember it and those of you who don't, um, it was destroyed during the war in 1993. It had been targeted before that moment, but then it finally, one shell sunk it. And then that's what it looked like for the end of the war. And then at the end of the war, you started to get this reconstruction. And the reconstruction project was funded, organized by UNESCO and the World Bank in particular. And they were very careful in the reconstruction to go to the original quarries, get as many stones as they could from the water, rescue as many original stones as possible, go to the quarries that the Ottomans had originally gone to, to rebuild a bridge that looked exactly as far as possible again with, to the original. Looks great, looks amazing. They did it, they rebuilt it, they rebuilt heritage. Did they rebuild that bridge? And everything that meant, that, that bridge meant, the symbolism, the emotions, people's reference point, what they felt about it, what it meant? No, they didn't. And I was trying to understand why. And why did I want to understand it so badly? Because on either side of the bridge, as they were focused in this kind of very 
focal vision or narrow vision on the bridge and being as authentic as possible in their physical material reconstruction of that bridge, there was other stuff going on around the bridge that they didn't seem to notice. There were mosques, I don't know if you can quite make out the cross up there on the mountain, on the hill. And this was going on on either side of the bridge. So the bridge is right here. And here you have a church tower and you have the minarets. And they were going on, so literally, both sides are literally physically, visually flicking each other off, right? And you have to imagine that it's not only this kind of vertical flicking each other off in the landscape, but imagine the sounds. So the church bell towers, the calls to prayer. So this is a very antagonistic landscape that's going on around the bridge. And what I found when I went to Mostar was an extraordinarily divided society where there's segregated schooling, segregated football teams, there's one school house, school building, and the kids have to take turns, the Bosniak kids and the Croatian kids, so that they don't coincide in the same classes. Everything was segregated. What had happened? So rebuilding the bridge hadn't magically, automatically rebuilt relationships amongst the community. So I wanted to try and understand why, why that hadn't worked. And that's why I'm going to try to explain to you today, partly is what happened. And in order to understand what happened, I wanted to go back to try and understand, well, what's the violence? What's the nature of that violence? So the destruction of Palmyra, other destructions that we've seen since then, the Afghan, the Bamiyan Buddhas, it's not just the visual explosion, which is all very dramatic, but what's actually going on in that violence? Why target those sites? And what's the impact? What's the harm done, actually, when you target and destroy those sites? And then more recently, I worked on the kind of reconstruction and remembering, and more recently, I've started working on repairing, and how do you repair that harm? So that's kind of the journey I'm taking you on in the next 40 minutes or so, and then leaving time for questions afterwards, okay? So in order to understand the nature of the harm done when cultural heritage is destroyed, first we have to understand what cultural heritage is. Is it just a building, a monument, some old stuff, or is there more to it? Well, this is just a reminder that this hasn't happened. It's not now, it's not a news story. Of course, my name is Dathya, so the Dacian Wars. Here's the Trajan Column and spoils and soldiers looting. So it's not a news story. It doesn't start with Mostar, much less with Palmyra. So trying to understand the nature of the harm done. And a lot of my work has been on Spain and the Spanish Civil War, as well as Bosnia. So a lot of the examples I'm going to give you are from Spain from the Spanish Civil War, from the reconstruction that was done under Franco's dictatorship. I'll also keep going back to Bosnia and occasionally bring in a few other examples. So the way we understand heritage, um, in the aftermath of the Second World War, you had a particularly um, strong moment of international organizations and consciousness about trying to protect cultural heritage. And as a result, that's when you get some of the most important international conventions to protect cultural heritage. One of them is the 1972 World Heritage Convention. And if you look up, these are word clouds that I did. So what, you, what a word cloud is, is you just take a text, put it into the software, and it does this beautiful image where the words that appear most often in the text appear bigger in the image. So that's what a word cloud does. So the words that appear image larger there are the ones that are repeated most often. So you have here, conservation, monuments, preservation, historic. Those are the words that are being used, conservation, protection, property. 
And then, so those were the 1970s, 60s, immediately after. You know, for the first ever convention was the 1954 Hague Convention on the Protection of Cultural Heritage in the Aftermath of War. And then you got these, and UNESCO is the international organization, so governmental, international governmental. ICOMOS is a professional body of people that work. It's the International Council for Monuments and Sites for the Conservation of Monuments and Sites. Then in 2005, UNESCO had this convention on the protection of expressions, cultural expressions and diversity. And ICOMOS came up with another convention also. And what I want you to focus here, look at, is that conservation. And now it's interpretation that's the focus. And up there also, you get from property to expressions. So there's been quite a shift in the past 40 years in terms of our understanding of cultural heritage and what the thing to be protected actually is, whether it's the stones or the meanings, the symbols of those stones, what they mean to people and the relationship people have with the stones. Is that what needs to be protected, the relationship or just the stones? And what this has resulted in is a kind of alliteration of P's, where we went from thinking about heritage very much, as, at least internationally, as property, to thinking about it as place, old towns that need to be preserved, historic city centers, performances, kind of folkloric performances, songs, dances, then as a product, something that can be sold. You sell the heritage of a place. You use it as a way of attracting people, so it becomes commercialized as a political project. If any of you have been following the stories in Spain now with Catalonia and independence, the way heritage is used there is very clearly a about a political project and reinforcing it. And increasingly, and perhaps most um, abstractly, heritage is thought of as a process. So in the academic literature, you hear all the time heritage being talked about as a process of meaning making that uses the past as a resource to make meaning now for the, for the purposes of what we, our needs now, to meet those needs now. And at the center of all of that really rests value, how we value heritage and the values that we project onto it and ask it to communicate. So what are those values? There's been, a, again, some, some shift. But here, if you take some of the earlier thinkers and most influential one now, Pierre Noah on heritage and history and the use of monuments, cultural resources, and what Pierre Nora called the lieu de mémoire, the sites of memory. They're all different ways in which history, heritage can be valued. Those are the different, so the history value, age value, use value. And recently, it's, it's the use value. It's the economic, functional, and use value that's come to the fore. Heritage is not longer important for the sake, for its own sake, for the sake of heritage, but for what it can do, what it can bring. It can attract tourists. It can be a social bonding glue that'll magically make a very disparate community feel like it's bonded and joined up. So it's asked to do a lot of things, politically, economically, but also the symbolic side of things. And that's where the tools, the utility value, and the symbolic value come together to demand a lot of things of heritage, to demand that it do a lot of things. But the interesting thing is it's also raised our awareness. Not only is heritage being asked to do things, but we're also increasingly aware of what heritage does, that it's not just an old stone to be conserved. Why are we conserving it? What's the message that we're sending by conserving it? Who are we sending that message to? Who might we be including or excluding 
in the decisions we make about what to preserve and what not to, and how to interpret it, right? So think about it. I've taken the site, you know, that I could have taken Stonehenge, I guess, but you know, kind of monumental heritage. That is heritage, absolutely, epitomically. Yeah, but everything that goes on around it is part of it. It's almost like an ecosystem for every heritage site. Whether you agree with some of it or like some of it or not, it, it's part of what that site means and how people relate to it. And one of my ways of trying to understand what went wrong with the Mostar Bridge, with the reconstruction of it, is that the international community forgot all about that, of that ecosystem, of those meanings, and just focused on the thing, on the materiality of the thing and getting that right in terms of the authenticity of the reconstruction. But they forgot that there was a whole lot of stuff that goes into making those stones heritage in the first place, and that that needed to be reconstructed as well, and that the relationships between the site and people needed to be reconstructed as well. So then I tried to understand, okay, well, what is destruction? What's, what, we talk about the destruction of heritage, but there's all different kinds of ways of destroying heritage. So I tried to create a bit of a typology where you have your destructive action, the object that's being targeted, and the context. And these could, you know, could be much longer, especially the context. But the point is to show you that the deliberate misuse or reuse of a cemetery, either destroying a particular tombstone or trying to erase the whole cemetery, to erase proof that that people had ever been there historically, is very different from vandalism to a public monument, from pulling down a statue of uh, Rhodes or Saddam Hussein or anybody else. Right? Those are two very different acts, but they all get talked about as destruction of cultural heritage. And depending on the context in which those acts take place, also becomes very different. Tells you something different. There are different victims being targeted by the acts, depending on the context. And there are different harms being done. So the reparation can't be the same. It can't just be about, OK, well, we rebuild it, and everything will be OK again. So this is the most abstract, I guess, slide. To try and understand that, I went to Johann Geltung, who writes about cultural violence. Um, he's the kind of godfather of peace, peace theory. And he talks about direct violence, so someone punches, kills, kicks, tortures, structural violence, so like a dictatorship, apartheid, and cultural violence, which he says cultural violence is the way in which the other forms of violence get justified, rationalized where people think, yeah, well, of course, that's the right format of politics, the right political structure for us, because there's, people are dangerous and we need to be protected. So you know, the ways we justify the violence. And Zizek talks about this, too. I mean, if Zizek were here, he would shudder that I've put him into a neat triangular model. But you know, he's talking about similar things, about objective and subjective violence and different forms of symbolic violence which is similar to Judith Butler, that sense of norm, the normative, the normalizing a form of language that creates and excludes and is inherently violent. So that's how I was trying to understand what was going on in terms of the destruction. And now some images. So moving away from the words. These are images from the Spanish Civil War. That's a Republican poster, so the Spanish Republic. 
not the nationalist one. I put the nationalist one there in inverted commas because they called themselves nationalist. And that's where you again start, the violence starts just with the language, right? We're nationalist, you're not. This is a civil war. Both sides felt that they were fighting for the nation. But you see that they're both depicting the other as foreign. The Republic is associating the Spanish in, as um, with Hitler, with Hitler's Germany. And here you have a nationalist poster equating the other with the Soviet Union, with the red Bolshevik devil. Also, other posters, representing the other not only as foreigner, so not Spanish, so delegitimizing their claims to Spanish heritage, but as not human. So not worthy of and not having a right to any kind of heritage anyway in the first place. So this kind of disowning that goes on in terms of people's heritage during wars. And that translates into physical, monumental, architectonic styles as well. So this is the Nationalist Pavilion in the Venice Biennale. This is with Italy with Mussolini. Mussolini invited the Francoist government to have a pavilion there. And this is the Republic's Pavilion in the Paris World's Fair in 1937, which is where you have Guernica exhibited, painted for by Picasso for this pavilion. So you see the two visions of Spain and two visions of Spanish heritage right there just in the architecture. Inside this pavilion, you had religious art. Um, inside this pavilion, you had very much avant-garde modernist art like Calder's Mercury Fountain and Picasso's Guernica. But it also translated into ideas of, for example, women and what a good Spanish, traditional Spanish woman should look like. And here you have one idea of what a Spanish woman should look like. And that was the Republic, where women were fighting not only and getting the right to vote, to legal abortions, to divorce, versus a woman that can barely move because of the weight of tradition, literally, that she's carrying on her shoulders. So all of these ideas, the, you know, the ideological division, translates into real life and visually into, it materializes in the architecture. So one of the things I wanted to show with that is that heritage isn't just kind of passive victim of war. It also gets used, it gets instru instrumentalized as a weapon of war. It gets used to divide, it gets used to intimidate, it gets used to say, this isn't yours because you're not one of us. That gets done with heritage as well. The thing that, so the agency of heritage itself to have an impact on how people feel about their belonging and legitimacy its weaponization and these singular narratives where, you know, if you remember that pyramid slide, no, it doesn't mean that, it just means this. It doesn't mean all these other 50 million things, just this. Those are the singular narratives that you often see associated with heritage because they're powerful. This stands for these moral values and for us as a nation. Think of Joan of Arc, think of Churchill, right? These heritage images that just stand for one thing when they're so much more complicated than that. And you've had a lot of talk, especially um, with what's been happening in Syria, in Libya, in Mali with the destruction of Timbuktu, of kind of cultural heritage as extremism's new target. It's not, it's not a new target. Um, it's not a question of extremisms and that they know what they're doing. You know, if we start talking about us civilized and you barbarians, that's also a form of extremism. Um, so, but it got, we had a lot of um, passionate talk around what was happening, right? Which didn't really go to the, in depth into what actually was motivating this destruction. So back to my destruction slide. 
So there's these physical forms of destruction, but there's also with the propaganda, intangible, and with language, the use of language, other forms of destruction as well that target different kinds of heritage sites, in a sense. And I'll give you an, so heritage, disowning heritage, what I mean by that is that sense of belonging and ownership which gets severed. And an example of how that happens. So in 2005, I heard Donnie George, who was the director of the Museum of Baghdad during the 2003 invasion when the museum was sacked. And his justification for why some of this destruction, not looting necessarily, but some of the destruction was done by Iraqis themselves was because of this. Because Saddam Hussein had associated himself with the Assyrian past in his restoration, restoration of Babylon had inserted bricks with his name on them. So in then destroying the Assyrian objects in the Baghdad Museum, they weren't destroying, as then the headlines often said, their own heritage. What they were doing was the equivalent of that, of tearing down a monument of Saddam Hussein. Because this had been so successful that there had been a, not generally, you know, but to those that took part in it, of disassociating themselves, that that was no longer part of their heritage. That's where the violence began, long before it ended up with that. So those are the of things that I'm trying to understand, the, the nature of the harm, the nature of the violence that's being done. So going back to that triangle and just applying to what Galtung and Zizek have talked about, the kind of the context that I'm looking into and what happens when the, you know, that direct violence is what we talk about, what we see, what the media reports, the deliberate targeting of heritage sites. But then there's that structural violence that allows, th allows things to happen, that allows sites to fall into ruin, to become disposable, unusable, to no longer be seen as garbage, but as rubbish. And that dissociation process and that exclusion that heritage can be used to affect. So assessing the harm done. This is a synthesis of what I've been trying to talk about, that sense of disowning of disappearing from the landscape, of excluding people from collective communal heritage through the, through the language used, through destroying their own heritage sites. And one of, this is an example of its effectiveness. This is a drawing from a young girl um, that she, she did it, and other children did similar ones. So in Spain, like in, the, in Britain, when the aerial bombings of London were taking place, children were sent out into the rural areas, into camps, into kind of summer camps. And in Spain also, to get the kids away from the towns that were being bombed, from the aerial bombing, they took them to these um, kind of summer camps, even though it wasn't necessarily summer. And one of the, what she drew here, what it says there is Las Dos Españas, the two Spains. And on the left, you have Don Quixote, who some of you might recognize. You have a craftsman, a teacher, a farmer and a doctor on the left, not accidentally. On the right, you have El Cid Campeador, another literary creature, uh, hero in Spanish literature. Um, and you have a banker, a monarch, a priest, and a soldier. So this 12-year-old girl has understood, has gotten the message that there are two Spains and that each one has a different heritage, different heritage narrative, different visualizations of that heritage narrative.
So it's quite effective, actually. And in 2006, when Zapatero was elected and then was the first actual president of Spain that came from a family line of Republicans, all of that came back up. The fact that there were two Spains came back up. In 2006, the war ended in 1939. Franco died in 1975. And it was still there in 2006. So these things have long roots and long arms that grab societies and kind of hold them around the neck for a long time to come. So what do you do with that? How do you repair that kind of harm, that kind of damage? And that's the stuff I'm trying to figure out now. So first, the reconstruction. Reconstruction, we use that word very easily, but there's a lot of going on. There's a lot of re's, right? There's the re actual rebuilding. There's also just revisioning the country, its past, its present, and its future trajectories. Recodifying space, by which I mean what the meanings, the values associated, the moral values often. Rewriting history, remembering the memorial, think of the memorial commemorative landscape in a post-war situation. And there I put a question mark around repair because that sense of reparation is what I'm trying to understand now. So each of those goes into what we call reconstruction. So it's a little bit more complicated than simply putting a building back up. Again, the choices you make about what style to rebuild that building in sends messages. So here's an example of the Puerta de Alcalá in Madrid. This is 1937, so the war starts in 36. The Republican government is in, is in Madrid in 1937. And as you can see, they've used the Puerta de Alcalá, this monument in the center of Madrid, which is a very symbolic monument in Madrid. There are songs written about it, poems, to hang their ideological flags on. And I hope you recognize at least Lenin and Trotsky. Um, and it says, Viva la URSS, so hooray for the Soviet Union. And then the nationalists win the war. They take Madrid. And in 1941, they use the same monument, the Puerta de Alcalá, to hold an outdoor phalangist ceremony. So you're, it's being used as an altar, but not only an altar, a phalangist altar. The same monument being used for two diametrically opposite things. What that means is one. The heritage site itself doesn't automatically exude one meaning, right? It can be used to back up all kinds of meanings. So then the question is, well, why is it so useful as a backup, as a stage prop, to legitimize ideolo ideologies, to, rep to legitimize political narratives and control? So what's the fairy dust of heritage, in a sense? And here in the reconstruction of Spain, you have the town hall of Potes in Asturias, and before the restoration work and after. Because Franco decided that the ideal vision of Spain was medieval Spain, when it was at the height of its empire, when the moral values were kind of austerity and severity and extreme religiosity, and that was the ideal Spain. So a lot of the restoration work was about making Spain and its monuments look more medieval look more castle-like. And here you have the Monasterio del Escorial, which was the center of that glorious Spanish empire from which you had Philip II, Charles V. I mean, that was their homeland. That's from where they ruled over this glorious empire, right? And you can see that it's made of, they used granite, they used slate, they used forged iron. 
So Franco built himself a ministry of the Air Force in the center of Madrid. And I get wonder, you've all gathered where he got his inspiration from. And all over Spain, all the town halls that were rebuilt in the aftermath of the war were rebuilt using, whenever possible, granite, slate, forged iron. And all those new town hall squares were given those little round balls and pinnacles, those decorative features of the Escorial. And the aim, and it's written, I'm not, you know, it's not just that I've seen the photos, it's actually written, was to create mini escoriales throughout Spain in order for them to convey the moral principles, ethical guidelines, the idea that this is the Spain that we're aspiring to. This is Spain's heritage. Not all the other stuff, not the modernist attempts, but this. And in that post-war period, so we have the the architecture, we also have the memorials, the monuments. This is a victory arch to Franco's victory in the Civil War. It's still there, it's still in Madrid. There was meant to be a statue of him riding a horse there that never quite materialized. This is the Valley of the Fallen, which he had built with prison labor from the war, and inside this granite rock, there's a basilica where he's buried today. Immediately underneath the cross is where he's buried. You can imagine this is a slightly contentious site in Spain today. And this is the inauguration of an exhibition shortly after the end of the Civil War, which th thus were the Reds, so kind of vilification of the other side. So that dehumanization, vilification that was going on in the propaganda during the war continues in the Reconstruction. So the point of this is kind of that Reconstruction isn't always about peace. <laughs> And that the violence of the war, especially clearly when it's won by one side of the war, when it's a dictatorship, can be perpetuated in the aftermath during the peace and the rebuilding. And that's not just about the monuments. It's also there in the popular culture. So red became associated to the evil Bolsheviks and those other Spaniards that had been contaminated by the red virus. That's how it was talked about. So you had in the popular culture from cartoons, films, radio programs, anything, all about the kind of uh, moments of glorious martyrdom of the side of the Francoists. The red became vile. So anything red was evil. This was, you know, that germs were going to get onto your child's pacifier and make them ill. If you said, spoke badly, if you said curse words, <laughs> that's because you'd gone red and lost control. This was a very industrious hat maker who put up this sign saying, the Reds never wear hats, which means, you know, you better all get yourself some hats <laughs> so no one in, under, thinks you're a Red. Little, blue, little Red Riding Hood became Little Blue Riding Hood. Um, the, for those of you that are football fans, the outfit of the Spanish football players, which is always red shirt, turned into a blue shirt. And here's Shirley Temple, a little paper doll toy of her in the phalangist uniform giving the phalangist salute. So you know, this, this permeated, this kind of cultural violence and the continuation of this separation and exclusion of the other side continued throughout the post-war. So what I, the point here is that there's this kind of negative cycle that can often be perpetuated in the reconstruction, whereby the reconstruction occurs on a post-war landscape. You can't just go back to before the war as if it hadn't happened. And that's often that mistake that's made in Reconstruction. 
So the reconstruction also transforms the landscape. Events and protagonists of the war itself become celebrated. And you get this process that actually just perpetuates, creates resentment and that sense of a historical injustice, which is, I think, to me, one of the reasons why in 2006 you could still talk about divided Spains and where in the newspapers you had these um, esquelas, when somebody dies and you have an obituary. And you had obituaries in 2006, 2007 in Spain, in El País, for all of those killed on the side of the Republic, and in ABC, in El Mundo, to those that had been killed fighting on the side of the nationalists. And they used the same language, vilely killed by the red hordes, vilely assassinated by the phalangist this or that. The same language in 2006. So that sense of a historical injustice and the resentment in a society and of a divided society of there being two Spains continued. So how do you repair this? <laughs> in reparations, sort of in the legal frameworks for reparations, you have restitution, compensation, and measures of satisfaction. I'm not a lawyer, so I've been working with lawyers at Queen's University in Belfast to try and understand what that means and what measures of satisfaction actually means. And this acknowledgement of victim suffering, the apologies or public apologies, memorials, and cultural education are the tools used for that satisfaction. <laughs> and it's an odd word, I find. But then the questions are, and I was at a meeting last summer in the International Criminal Court, which was the first meeting they'd ever held to talk about cultural heritage destruction. Because they'd had the Al-Mahdi case, sorry, I'm really hot, I'm gonna take this off. They had the Al-Mahdi case of the destruction of shrines in Timbuktu, um, and they weren't sure what to do in terms of future cases that might come up. And let's see, let me not get this tangled. Um, so the questions that the court had are, <laughs> sorry. There we go. Um, who are the victims? When a site gets destroyed, if tomorrow's Stonehenge gets destroyed, who are the victims? Are there different classes of victims? Are there the immediate victims, the community victims? Are we all victims of it, if it's world heritage? What's the nature of the harm? How to repair a remedy what's essentially irreplaceable? That's why it would be a world heritage in the first place. And how to remedy the harm um, suffered by communities connected to their cultural property. So those are the kinds of questions that the court had, which are slightly different than the ones that I have, but what I thought got me thinking about, okay, well, let's see how we can answer those questions. So I went to try and understand how courts think. They have war crimes, crimes against humanity, and genocide, which all talk about the destruction of cultural heritage. So in terms of war crimes, it comes up in Nuremberg, and then you have in the ICTY, the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, this sense of willful destruction. And this comes from the 1954 Hague Convention that I mentioned earlier that was used in those courts in the ICTY to try and find people guilty for destruction of cultural heritage, or at least responsible. And then you have crimes against humanity. Again, there's a precedent in Nuremberg. And then also at the ICTY. And this is where it's starting to get to what I was trying to talk about, that it's more than just the stones, that the destruction of cultural heritage, that cultural violence is more than just about destroying monuments. It happens in various ways, and we need to understand how it happens to understand how to repair it. And then there's genocide. So the cultural genocide and culture was not included in the Genocide Convention, despite the 
very vociferous protests of Poland um, because it was deemed to be a little too, too fuzzy, too difficult to pin down. And here you have, so you have this, it prohibits the destruction of groups, um, but excludes attacks on cultural, religious property or symbols of the group. So there's a bit of a lacuna in international criminal law about what to do with these cases. There are also different ideas about reparations. So in the case, you have some precedents here in the case of Poland on top, where it was deemed that after the destruction of this factory, that a reparation must, as far as possible, wipe out all the consequences of the destruction. So again, it's this kind of ambition to go back to before it was destroyed and, be, and have it be as if nothing had ever happened. And yet, in 2004, in the ICTY, there's a sense of, well, when possible, it should be restored. But even that restoration can never return the buildings to their state prior to the attack because of a certain amount of original material is always going to be lacking. And you have that, I mean, in the case of Warsaw, is one in which the reconstructions after the complete dissemination, destruction, raising, and bulldozing of Warsaw, there is this reconstruction that was done using Belotto's paintings, um, Canaletto's paintings, old postcards, old photographs, whenever possible, to do the reconstruction of Warsaw so that it would look as it had done before the destruction. And now you have this reconstructed old town center of Warsaw, which is a UNESCO World Heritage Site. And that was really important, because this is UNESCO declaring Warsaw a World Heritage Site, knowing that it's all been rebuilt, and that it's new, not authentic. But again, the point there is, well, what is authentic? right? And is that authenticity the importance of the place in the first instance, and the relationship of people to the place, the way it looks in a certain way? And you have this, one of the tendencies, in, again, in case law is for compensation, to reparations be about compensation. You had this destroyed, okay, well here's the money that you need to rebuild it so that it looks like it did before it was destroyed. And then you have these in cases like with Eritrea and Ethiopia where Ethiopia destroyed the stella, Eritrea said, well, let's compensate us for having destroyed the stella. Ethiopia said, okay, well this is how much it cost you to rebuild it and restore it, so that's the money we'll give you. Neri Tres said no, because actually 80% of that stella now is new, new material, not old material, and that, that money doesn't really reflect the damage that was done for, to us as a community by destroying that. So then Eritrea, quite cleverly and also cheekily, said, well, you, Ethiopia, have spent all that money, $8 million, in trying to create, reclaim a stella from Italy. So if your Stella means that much to you, give us that much for our Stella, which you destroyed. Right? That was thrown out by the court, but the court did say, okay, it's not, you know, there's more to this than just the money that it cost you to rebuild it, so here, have some more money. But that monetary compensation is never quite satisfactory or satisfying, if you think about that satisfaction element. So, these are the different elements that go into reparations that we're trying to work with, the sense of that acknowledgement of the harm done, finding responsibility and trying to atone or remedy the harm 
still trying to figure out what that harm is. That sense of accountability, of returning to victims also all that they have lost and remedying that harm. But this is what we're still trying to figure out, what we're still working with, is how you do this and what that harm is. So in the case of Mali, the reparations, and this is the Al-Mahdi case, which I've mentioned before, and the t shrines of Timbuktu, there's the destruction and then the reconstruction, which was funded by UNESCO. So he pleaded guilty, was sentenced, and then the ICC ordered reparations and finding the defendant liable for 2.7 million. And the three types of harm that they saw was the damage to buildings, resulting economic loss, and moral harm. So the damage to buildings is fairly straightforward. The resulting economic loss. So if you're selling um, amulets or if you're selling anything related to these shrines near them and you haven't been able to sell anything for three years because they've been destroyed, that economic compensation. But what about moral harm? So the way in which the court suggests that the moral harm be compensated is through these symbolic measures, such as memorials, commemorations, or forgiveness ceremonies to give public recognition. One of the cases that I'm working on with these colleagues from Queen's University is the Cham community in Cambodia. So this is a Muslim com community in Cambodia who were particularly targeted by the Khmer Rouge. And targeted in the sense that all of their religious buildings, um, sites, monuments were destroyed, but also the religious people and elders um, and leaders were, were killed in the, very early on. So colleagues went back and said, okay, well, there's this ACCC, there's this court in Cambodia that's there to compensate you, to try and understand what you suffered and to compensate you in some way, repair that harm. How could we repair the harm that was done to you? Would you like a monument? Would you like a museum? Would you like a public ceremony? Would you like a memorial? And they said, no, 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 thank you very much. We don't want to stand out as having suffered more than other Cambodians. Okay, so what do you do then? Now, it's not so straightforward. Not everyone wants a memorial or a museum or a monument or a big ceremony. And in that sense, one of the things that, you know, the, the loss was such that they say, look, there was this rupture. We were here, this for this Cham of Cambodia, there was this rupture, and now we're here. And we don't actually know the content of what we lost in many cases. We know we've lost songs and traditions. We don't know what they are. We've lost them. And that's what cultural genocide does when it's successful. So how do you compensate that? One of the things that we've been working with now with them is to develop school textbooks that write them back into the story of Cambodia. That's what they wanted, not to be signaled out as being different from other Cambodians, but as being Cambodian, being part of the grand narrative of the nation. That's what they wanted. That kind of, you know, if, you, if the violence, the genocidal, cultural genocidal violence is to disappear people. They wanted to be reappeared and re-included once again into that narrative. So again, how do you repair the moral harm? What are meaningful symbolic measures of monuments, memorials, and commemorative and ceremonies are not quite right? And this was responding to the rebuilt shrines you had the mayor of Timbuktu saying justice had been done. And that sense of justice being done, I don't think it's necessarily about criminal justice, but a sense of moral justice has been done. 
which maybe can help break that cycle of violence that I mentioned in relevant to Spain, where that sense of injustice continues. So that sense of reappearing people that, where the attempt was to disappear them, reowning, getting them to reown their heritage and a communal collective shared heritage, that polysemia or multivocality in the face of singular narratives of heritage, that sense, and I put sense there because if we'd use the word justice, then that gets us into all kinds of rigmaroles. And then the last one is dignity. This is the one, I know it can sound a bit flaky, but it's the word that keeps coming up. It's the word that comes up in Bosnia, in Spain, in Cambodia, in Mali, is dignity. We want our dignity back. Why are so many people in Spain trying to uncover where their grandfather uncles were buried in these unmarked or mass graves? They want to find out where they are and go give them a proper burial. It's a question of, well, they say dignity that they want. It's also that sense of reappearing, reowning, and having a more multiple sense of, of interpretation of history and heritage. So going back to Bosnia and to the Mostar Bridge where this all started for me, um, and that division that I witnessed, in one of the interpretations of, and what, of what happens in the aftermath of wars, that, is that again, that read that I put, you, that slide with all the reconstruction, right? It's a revisualization. It's all the other stuff that's going on, a reinvention of the past in light of present needs and relations. So it's, you can never go back to before it happened. And trying to is dangerous because then you don't take into account everything that happened and the actual landscape that you're rebuilding on. And this was a response of Mostaris, people that lived in Mostar said, OK, you international community giving us our Mostar bridge back, thank you very much. This is our shared heritage. We all grew up with Bruce Lee, whether we were Croatian, Serbian, Bosniak, Jewish, immigrant, other. Bruce Lee, we all watched him. We all played him out in the playgrounds when we were all in the same school. That's our shared common heritage. Don't give us this Ottoman bridge which I forgot to mention earlier, the international community did this international tender and gave it to a Turkish company to rebuild the Ottoman bridge, thinking and patting themselves on the back for that historic continuity and sending all kinds of antagonistic messages locally. Right? So this was tongue-in-cheek. It's done by an artist-activist group, but I think it makes a very eloquent point. So my points in kind of ending this is also that if, if heritage can be weaponized, if it can be armed, then we have to figure out also how to disarm it. And that takes understanding that heritage isn't just a bystander, it's not just a victim, it also gets used and instrumentalized in all kinds of ways and for violent purposes and to intimidate and to threaten. And these are what I see as the implications for protection and reparation policies, projects, initiatives of any kind. That sense of focusing on the narrative of heritage, the meanings, the relationships, the memories, not just the physical object. And that kind of ecosystem of heritage, that it's very entangled. This is a very fashionable word now in academia anyway, entanglements and everything is entangled and everything is a kind of assemblage. And so. Here's another one, ecosystem. <laughs> 
But you know, that sense that thing, it's connected. It's not, it doesn't exist in its own glass case. It's part of something larger. And we, if the more we think of heritage as existing inside a glass case or as protecting it, the best protective measure being to put it in a glass case, we turn it into something else. It's no longer what makes it meaningful in the first place. So going forward, um, what do we do? And is you know the, the reconstruction of the arc in Palmyra, the Palmyra arc that was done in Trafalgar Square in New York, brought attention and made people more aware, perhaps, of what had happened. But one of my concerns is, you know, are we going to just repeat in Syria the mistakes that were made in Bosnia, where as soon as they can, the international community, with lots of humanitarian good intentions, is going to go in there rebuilding stuff for the Syrians, and it's going to have all the opposite consequences. So my last slide, um, acknowledgments to my colleagues at the Queen's University in Belfast, the School of Law, and this project we're working on together, because without them, I don't understand the legal texts at all. And then to say, well, in, on the 8th of May, so not that long ago, we launched this Cambridge Heritage Research Center. Um, and these are the transversal themes that we're walking, working um, with lots of other departments, so archaeology, classics, land economy, development studies, criminology, lots of different departments working together at the center that we just started. And I don't have books on sale anyway to sign, but there are two books there, and there are order forms that have a 20% discount if anyone's interested, and that's, that's all from me, and I'd be really happy to hear from you. And I have one, two, three so far. Would you like, and four, would you like to start? Thank you. Thanks. Um, so you mentioned it briefly uh, about the international community versus sort of the locals. And how do we, because obviously the international community can provide a lot of finances to help with sort of that. And they won't be that interested in teaching people how to do like old folk, folk music and things. So how do we strike a balance between getting the money from the international community, but actually doing what the locals need and want. Yeah, so you've put your finger on the biggest problem. And when I went back to UNESCO after seeing that in Mostar and talking to people in Mostar, I spoke to whoever I could um, in, in UNESCO and said, I think we're getting things wrong. And why aren't you consulting more with the local community? The best answer I got to that question is, we don't have research on this topic, which is why I left UNESCO to go do the research. <laughs> the worst answer I got was, what if we ask the local community and they don't tell us what we want to hear? That was the worst answer. What happens with local community, and academics make this mistake also, is that local communities don't speak with one voice. And local communities are fragmented, especially after a war. And there are jealousies, and they, there's competition for that international money. And not everyone wants to speak about what they've suffered after a war. We shouldn't expect them or force them to. So usually it's the kind of local entrepreneurs who are like, ah, oh, yes, this is my chance, who do speak with the international community. And they're the ones that end up getting the money. So I think it's not an answer. It's perhaps a, a way of working that we could do differently. It's about, it's about time. And the, time frames that societies work on, which are very different from the time frames of international projects. So like with the Mostar Bridge, there was a big rush to get that done within the project framework, the funding framework, and get that photo up. 
And UNESCO and the World Bank still um, present that as one of their great success stories. And then there's the time that communities need. You know, Spain, <laughs> 2006, there's, it's still an issue. So why are we forcing them to reconcile you know, the day after the fighting stops, if that process takes a long time? In my field work in Guernica, I came across, so there, you know, when I first arrived there, starting my PhD, they told me, oh, there's a society of, this, of the survivors of the bombing, go talk to them. Like, Yay, it's all organized, there they are, I can go find them, have tea with them, have a drink with them, hear it from them. You know, five years later into my research, I start finding people who survived and witnessed the bombing who weren't part of that society. Of that. Why aren't they part of that? Why don't they go to the same lunches and meetings? Why don't they want to talk about it? Why haven't they talked about it with their grandchildren ever? So it's about trying to find all those voices and include them, and sometimes that takes a lot of time. It's not an easy one to materialize, but that's one way of maybe going at it. You have a question? Oh, right. Oh, sorry. I was just going to ask, um, what role, if any, do you think uh, that cultural heritage plays in the Brexit vote? <laughs> well, you probably all have a better idea of, of that than me. I'm half Spanish, half American, though I've lived in this country for 15 years now. Um, but it did seem to me that there was a protectionist of protecting our heritage. And that, one of the things I want to try and understand is this relationship of heritage and perceptions of risk or perceptions of danger. So if you look at the protection policies around heritage, they're very responsive to where perceived dangers are. So in the 80s, maybe it was kind of acid rain, or maybe a bit earlier, acid rain was going to burn through all their monuments. So all these mechanisms were created to kind of coat buildings with protective latex kind of things. Then you had, a, it was going to be the rays of the sun that were going to burn into things. So then you had all these mechanisms developed to protect heritage from the rays of the sun. Now it's kind of rising water levels and climate change. So now you have all these mechanisms developed to protect heritage from that kind of thing. So that perception of danger is really important to then inform what heritage is protected and how. So that's where heritage is absolutely 100% political. There is no separating heritage from politics. And the political climate, very often, and where that political discourse tells you that the danger is, will inform where the protection and where the money goes and how that protection looks. So they go together. So what I'd be interested in, in trying in looking at figures in terms of funding, of where funding has been going to in the aftermath of Brexit, and where will it continue to go to, and how that looks different or similar to where it was before because that will tell us where maybe we feel the danger being. So it's not a straightforward answer, sorry. Yeah. Yes. Was it? Um, you mentioned UNESCO and uh, World Heritage Sites several times. I wonder if that might not be the, base, the root of the problem, in that the monuments tend to get built by the powerful, uh, or the dominant anyway, uh, and I was thinking of the Rohingya in Burma probably haven't got any monuments. They've got villages that aren't there anymore. Yeah. Is declaring world heritage sites, and every country seems to have to have its requisite number of them, mm. really giving symbols to people who then destroy them? That they're the best thing to destroy? Yeah, there was a debate. At, um, so there's this organization called the Blue Shield, which comes out of the Hague Convention. And the attempt of the Blue Shield was to create a kind of red cross for heritage. 
And so they thought, okay, well, we'll put a symbol of a blue shield on all the sites not to be destroyed, all the World Heritage Sites, because they're the ones protected by the Hague Convention. And then there was a, wait, wait a second, aren't you just putting a target on them? Uh, aren't you just saying, oh, if you want to hurt us, this is the building you want to be destroying? Right? So there's still a debate around that. Um, the thing with putting the image on there is that if it does get destroyed, then whoever destroyed it can't claim to have had no idea <laughs> that it was a World Heritage Site or that it was protected, so then you can try them in court with much more success. That doesn't stop the destruction necessarily, but that's why the Al-Mahdi case was so important, because it sets a precedent for actually trying someone for that and putting them in prison for it. Um, I don't know if I've really answered. Uh, there is a question in the, in the back. I just want to give everyone a chance to chip in. Hi. I'll come back. Um, um, my grandfather was a Polish Jew who lived in Yaroslav. And as I went in 2010, and as far as I can see, no Jews live there anymore. Mm -hmm. So there are two synagogues left, and they're in disrepair. There's one guy who runs both of them and hands out um, yarmulkes and stuff like that, but he's the only guy who really cares, as far as I can tell. Yeah. Um, and I don't think the government, they've put like a plaque in place to say, in memory of all the Jews who were killed, but the government has no intention of putting up any monuments besides that, and mm -hmm. do you think it actually matters at this point? Sorry, I know that's quite... No, it's a good <laughs> question. And I found it quite interesting about how many Holocaust um, memorials are going up now, recently. And I wonder if it's something to do with the generations dying out and having a need for... So there's this idea, sorry to throw academic lingo at you, but this idea that there's communicative memory of people that are alive who live the event, who can talk about it. And when they pass away, it becomes cultural memory, comes kind of solidified, almost like monumentalized. Um, and that that transition period has a big effect on how we remember things. So yes, it's important to remember. If there's no national will, political will, can you do it? Yes, you can still do it. There are all kinds of associations and societies that can put up those monuments to remember. I don't know if the monuments, I mean, what do you think? Do you feel a monument would be a useful thing to have there? I've been to Krakow. And in Krakow, it felt also there's the Jewish quarter, but it almost felt the opposite of what you're saying, where there, there was these kind of token memorials and token plaques, but it also didn't feel like a living neighborhood. It feel, felt a little bit like a museumified neighborhood. So is that really repairing the damage done? Is the reparation not to continue to thrive and to tell the stories and to be alive and be visible? And that visibility and that being active and not having been disappeared from a society is what actually is the most in reclaiming the violence and repairing, as far as possible, the violence as well, rather than a monument. I mean, there are some that claim that we put up monuments so that we can forget. There's the monument. Now I don't have to think about it anymore. So I think there are other ways of doing that job of memory that are more effective than monuments although they're important in the visible landscape as well, to say, hello, here we are, don't forget. Um, I think there's <laughs> anybody, where's the microphone? And there's a question there, and then another one here. Yeah. Thank you. Um, if, if you were to go back to UNESCO as 
as head of policy, <laughs> what are some of the, the main recommendations you would be making? So I did go back in March for the first time since I left and interviewed lots of people that are working on this now. The good news is that the 2003 Intangible Heritage Convention has meant that they're doing a lot of work and thinking on the impact of war on intangible heritage, on traditions, on songs, on folklore, on know-how. Um, so they are thinking about it. They haven't published it yet because they still don't quite know <laughs> where it's going. Um, I think one of the things I would do, but maybe this is going to sound quite self-serving to you, is to link the organization that doesn't have the manpower to do research with those that are doing the research already so that they don't repeat the same mistakes of the past. So I think the organization, which is because of the US pulling out its funding, because of Palestine being recognized, Israel pulling out its funding, the organization is financially in a crisis right now. So they're cut back on projects. They're cut back. They're one of the consultants that they would usually hire to do that kind of groundwork and research and consulting with local communities. So I think if I were to go back, which I have no intention of doing, it would be to say, well, you know, you can't do the work. Work with those that can do the work, and not with your three or four people who you go to for everything, whether it's about education or science or culture or heritage, but to the actual researchers around the world that are doing that job and do it more, you know, build those relationships now so that if something happens, you know where to go to, or so you can start developing policy and practice that is a bit more effective on the ground. I don't know if we're out of time or if we can keep going for a few more minutes. I don't know who's the boss. <laughs> if we can keep going, I'm happy to keep going. But see, like, there's a question here in the front. Hi. So, regarding um, genocides and stuff that have happened in civil wars and mm -hmm. whatnot. Um, in your opinion, have the mass grave landscapes become monumental to the communities that were affected in the sense that they are a physical place to grieve and mm -hmm. to remember? Yeah, they're really interesting sites, the mass graves. Um, I think it's very different in civil wars or world wars. I, have, I don't do work on the sites of the Second World War or the First World War, but I have colleagues who do. And some of those sites have been really interesting in terms of developed idea, sense of kinship amongst the family members of those who were killed there. So whether it's Australian families coming back to France and going to visit the cemeteries and coinciding there with families from other places and saying, oh, you look, you know, our two relatives were in the same regiment and they're creating a sense of a bonding also of the local communities in France, kind of feeling that they have adopted these fallen soldiers and taking care and tending to the cemeteries and the graves themselves and that creating an interesting relationship. In Spain, it's very much been an activist kind of thing of finding where these people are buried. Um, so, and it's also in, in that valley of the fallen that I showed you. Franco meant it to be also crypts. There are two crypts in the valley on either side where there are the mortal remains of people that were killed during the war to fill those crypts. <laughs> Bodies were taken often against the wills of their families on the nationalist side, but especially on the Republican side. So one of the saddest things in this whole process of going out and trying to exhume these graves is that people will finally find the grave site or the, the burial site and go and, and try to find the remains of their family members only to find out that 30 years ago they were taken to the crypt 
in the Valley of the Fallen, and then finding that. So about a month ago was the first time ever the two families, one from the nationalist side and one from the Republican side, were allowed to go and find, and with help, find the remains of their family members. That was the last month for the first time. And you had these very moving images, which actually I didn't have time to show you, but here is of the families embracing outside the crypt. So it, they can be very powerful tools in reconciliation and in memory. And is that my time up? Brilliant. Thank you so much, everybody. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you.